Uh, Turn in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 19. And this morning we'll look just at the first six verses of Exodus 19. And as you know, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word together. So if you're able, uh, would you please stand together. Uh, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall shall speak to the people of Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we're all gathered at your word to hear you. Uh, Let our hearts and souls be stirred now to seek and love and fear you. Grant that we, your word, may trust and obtain true consolation. And would you open our ears and our heart And help us, O Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, I stole lines from the hymn we just sang. Um, You've uh, you've heard me say before that, um, that salvation is more than just a get out of hell free card. That if we think of our... Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as, as nothing more than a life insurance policy of sorts, then I think we're thinking too little of it. You know, that's it's fairly common among believers and among churches to sort of have this notion that if I can just get somebody to pray a prayer or to raise a hand or to walk an aisle or to say this thing and do this thing, then, then we're good and they're safe and we can move on and go from there. I think that misses a key component of why we have been saved at all. And the Bible tells us that there's more to salvation both in this life and in the next. And, and it has far greater blessing even than just not going to hell when you die. Which, by the way, is a great blessing. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me minimizing the blessing of heaven over hell. That's not the point. But I think we, um, it's easy for us to, to miss what might be the real aim, the real intent of our Salvation, And we get a glimpse of that here in these first six verses. Let me sort of set the stage for you. Let me remind you where we are and, for that matter, um, what's coming. 
uh, because there, there's both sort of geographical and canonical stage that sort of needs to be set. Uh, the people of Israel have, have left Egypt. Obviously, you know this. Uh, they, they encamped at Rephidim. They've now left Rephidim. And now here they are in the wilderness of Sinai, basically at the foot of uh, Mount Sinai. But the thing is, Moses has been here before. This isn't new territory for Moses. In fact, he's here precisely because God told him back in chapter 3 that he would be back here again. Because you, you see back in chapter 3, verse 12, we have this promise from God. You, you, you do remember the, the bush? The, the bush that was on fire but not really burning? And the, the voice of God that came out of that burning bush and called Moses to go back and deliver his people. That, that's familiar, right? You remember this burning? Well, one of the things that God said to him at the end of that sort of speech was this in chapter 3, verse 12. But I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And here we are in chapter 19. What was Mount Horeb back in chapter 3 is Mount Sinai here. They're the same mountain, the same place. God's already fulfilling promises to Moses. Just by virtue of being there, Moses at least would go, wait a minute. I recognize some of this. Hold on. God said I'd be back here. Hey, look, I think I know this tree. I mean, it's only been a year or two. It hadn't been that long in the grand scheme of things. I think I recognize that tree. I slept under that tree. I remember that was the bush. You don't, you don't know what he's seeing or what he's seeing or what he's remembering exactly. But he at least knows that God is already fulfilling his promises. But, but there's a, another sort of stage that you might find helpful. It's easy sometimes, I think, when we read the Old Testament, especially... Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to lose track of the movement of God's people. Here's the thing. They don't move until Numbers 10, 11. So for the rest of Exodus, they're still right here. For all of Leviticus, they're still right here. For the first 10 chapters of Numbers, they're still right here. And it's not until 10, 11 that they finally actually pack up and start to move towards um, the promised land. I think it's easy for us as readers so far removed from the time and place to, to think, well, they were just wandering around the whole time I'm reading Leviticus. And we all know how long that can take us. The whole time I'm reading Leviticus, the people are just kind of walking in circles. They don't move at all. They're always right here at the foot of Mount Sinai. Notice that the passage um, begins with a quote uh, in verse 3. And in this quote, Moses is called to be a prophet of God. He becomes God's mouthpiece. They remain there in the wilderness and yet God, Moses is up the mountain and, and, and coming back and speaking to the people and up the mountain and talking to God and coming back and speaking with the people. Notice um, how verse 3, uh, well, the middle of verse 3, the quote there in verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house 
of Jacob. And everything you read from from three to six is really a, a quotation. It's God speaking to Moses, but but God says, "Thus you shall say." That's that's take technical language. That that's prophet language. That's the language that says, "Okay." mouthpiece of God, you don't get to interpret. You don't get to translate. You don't get to paraphrase. You don't get to whitewash. You don't get to make it sound better. You don't make get. You say what I'm about to say to you. The role of the prophet um, is not telling the future. Sometimes they do that, but that's not the prophet's primary function. The prophet's primary function was not telling what's going to happen, not foretelling, but forthtelling. Speaking the word, the message that God had for his people. Just think of Jonah. There's no future prophecy. His job, he's called. Okay, never mind the conflict part, right? But his command was go call the Ninevites to repentance. Not go tell what's going to happen in 4,000 years. So we would do well to remember that the prophet's primary function was to speak God's word to God's people. To speak God's revealed will to God's people. We get a little glimpse of this in Hebrews chapter 1. When the writer sort of goes, hey, remember how God used to make things known through dreams and visions and prophets. And he basically says, we don't need those anymore because now we have Jesus and now we have the completed canon. And when we have his word written for us, we don't need prophets anymore because we don't need people to to foretell his revealed will. We have it right here. You're holding it in your lap. Some eye device or some maybe actual paper. But we have God's revealed will. So Moses, as any prophet, serves as this intermediate, this go-between between God and his people. He gets the message from God and then speaks that message to God's people. In fact, you see in verse 6, um, Uh, God ends with basically a repeat of what he started with at the end of very, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, that's technical language for say these words. Don't, don't interpret, don't translate, don't change, don't edit, don't, don't, you know, do anything to them. Say these words. You're supposed to say this to the people. So Moses is called to serve as God's mouthpiece. So what's he going to say? What's his message? What is it that he says in this passage? Notice he begins verse 4. The message begins with remembering the past. Did, Did you notice? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. You know, Israelites, you saw, let me just remind you again, it hadn't been that long. In fact, it's been three new moons, three months, right? 
seven to nine weeks. I guess it sort of depends on the calendar. Three months since they left Egypt. Surely they haven't forgotten. And yet God reminds them all over again. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You, you remember those plagues? You remember the ten plagues I sent? And, and like made it, you know, hail in certain parts of Egypt, but not where you were. And remember how I turned the water, the Nile River into blood. And, and remember how with the cattle. And remember, and remember the, the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And that every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb painted on its door, the firstborn was put to death that night. From, from Pharaoh's palace to the poorest farmhand in the land. And everyone in between suffered the same death of the firstborn. That final blow of um, final sort of evidence of God's power over Egypt and over the gods of Pharaoh. It's a picture of divine judgment. The Egyptians were oppressing God's people. The Egyptians had God's people enslaved and and in bondage that's the language that gets used over and over again and so what does god do well he begins here in verse 4 reminding them hey remember the judgment the divine judgment that i handed down on the egyptians even to the point that that when i parted the red sea and you walked through on dry land and you turned around and saw them coming and you got nervous what happened? The Red Sea collapsed. The army was gone. God reminds them, you've, you've, seen, you've already seen what I've done to deliver you from slavery. See, the reality is, those who oppose God's people oppose God. Those who oppose Israel, those who oppose the church oppose God. Why? Well, you can't attack the body and the head not know it. You don't get to punch somebody in the arm and the head not react at all. And that's the the picture here. God comes and delivers His people. And one of the things He does in accomplishing that deliverance is handing down this divine judgment on their oppressors. God's delivered His people from bondage. But that's not where He stops. See, it's not that God brought them out of Egypt and, and said, okay, good, now you're here, now you're safe. The, the Red Sea's kind of collapsed back. Good luck. Hope it goes well. That direction will take you to the land of Canaan. Holler if you need me. Like, that's not the message. That's not the... You know, I hope it all goes well. You know, just let me know if there's anything else I can do. Um, you know, just give me a call. That's not the message at all. In fact, the image he uses, I bore you on eagle's wings. So eaglets um, evidently stay in the nest longer than a lot of birds do. And I guess um, eagle, eagle moms over the years have decided that just about the best way to teach your eaglet to fly is to, 
to push him out of the nest. Just give him a good shove. Swift kick in the rear end. I mean, I guess, I guess there's really no better way to learn to fly than just free falling off the edge of a cliff. I mean, you're either going to get it or you're not, right? That doesn't sound very loving, does it? Except, what if the eaglet doesn't get it? Smash his head on the rocks down below. No. She swoops down underneath him. She follows behind him, swoops underneath him and catches him on her back. Takes him back up again and keeps going until he learns. Oh, if I spread these things out, I won't fall. She, she bears her young on her wings. That's the picture of God bringing his people out of Egypt. The Red Sea, it was, it was a problem. It was in the way. Fixed it. Water, we, we don't have any good water we can drink. Got this bitter water. Solved it. We don't have any food to eat. Don't need, manna and quail. Solved. Oh no, the Amalekites are coming and they're attacking. Solved. God defeated them as well. It's this image of of eagles carrying their young to safety. And you can almost picture Gandalf and company's excitement when the eagles show up. It's the eagles. And Thorin and the rest were all delivered to safety taken out of harm's way, taken from danger and delivered safely to uh, where they could move on from there. You do realize that Exodus is a, a picture of our own salvation. I mean, this is exactly our situation. This is exactly our condition. We too were enslaved in bondage to sin. And the only way out, the only way for deliverance is for God to come and, and solve the problem Himself. To free us from bondage. To break that bond of sin on our hearts, on our lives. And then to bear us on eagles' wings as gently and lovingly as a mother eagle does her young. What exactly have the Israelites done to deserve this? Do you remember? Remember what they did? Nothing. There's, there's, it's not like they can go, well, I mean, you know, God did like 90% of it, but, you know, that, that sword I stuck in that Amalekite was pretty important. Or, or that thing I'd, I mean, there's no, nowhere along the way can the Israelites claim any credit for their own salvation. And nowhere can they say, well, I mean, the reality is we, he owes us. I mean, we're, we're pretty good. You know, we're not, not like these people. A whole lot better than those people. It's funny how we do that, isn't it? That we as Christians end up in this sort of temptation to kind of go to think that, 
well, I would never, and those people that, that do whatever, if you can fill in the blank, right? Those people that, and the blank can be any number of things, we would never do it because we're so much better than that. I think you've completely missed your salvation. You're just like that, but for God's grace. And that's the picture here is that Israel has done absolutely nothing to earn or to gain or to, to, to merit their salvation. And yet here they are born on the wings of an eagle eagle. That's our story. We can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't keep the law enough. We can't love God enough. We can't love others enough. We can't do anything to gain or to earn our deliverance. It's all of God's grace. But does that mean we have no obligations whatsoever? You see, there is actually an an effect that our salvation should have on us. There are obligations that come with this covenant relationship that we now have with God. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey. Ah, there's that word. We love it when we're parents and we have kids. We love the word obey as parents because we try so hard to get our kids to obey. They don't very well. But we try. It's a great word when we're parents. But we don't much like it when we think that somehow I've got to obey God. Like we really kind of want to hem and haw and make excuses and, and hedge our bets a little bit here and there. But verse 5, God says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. Now there are a couple of words you need to notice there. The first one is, Therefore. Okay, grammar lesson number one for the day. Yes, number one. There's another one coming. Grammar lesson number one for the day, right? The standard preacher thing, right? Anytime a preacher preaches, especially one of Paul's letters, every single time when you get to the therefore, they always do this. When you see a therefore, you have to ask, what's it there for? Right? Therefores look back. Therefore means in light of, because what I have said is true now, in light of that, because of that, do this. In other words, the order matters. The command to obey doesn't come until after deliverance by grace through faith in the Redeemer. We don't need to get those backwards. The Ten Commandments aren't, and here I am giving away a sermon from two weeks from now, um, which I really hate doing. The Ten Commandments are nev- were never given to people to say, if you will do these things, then I will save you. They were given to people who were already saved. So you're hearing it now, you're going to hear it again in a couple of weeks. Exodus 20 actually begins, because I've already done this, now here are your Ten Commandments. The law has never been our means of salvation. We've always been saved by grace. We've always lived under grace. And this therefore says, because I've already delivered you, now therefore obey. It's only then that obedience is even remotely possible. 
But it's also only then that obedience is ultimately commanded. But there's another word you need to notice. And it's a word that we might be tempted to skip. Um, A word that in many ways might make us uncomfortable. It's a condition. It's the word if. If you will obey my voice. And there's this sort of implied then, right? If you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. There's this, there's this blessing for faithful obedience and there's, it's, it's based on the condition of being faithful. By the way, this matters throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Why exactly when Assyria came calling, when Babylon came calling, why exactly were they sent, were the, 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 the kingdom of Judah, why was exactly was it sent into exile in Babylon? Why exactly was the temple destroyed? Because they were faithless. Because they rebelled. Because they didn't obey. It was because of the faithlessness of God's people in keeping His command. The word order matters. You see this in Paul. There are are Paul's New Testament letters always, and here's grammar lesson number two. You can almost outline every single one of Paul's letters with the indicative, the imperative. Indicative. Grammar language. It it describes what is. And and the first half of his letter, and and 12, 1, and Romans, and Ephesians 4, 1, I think it is, and Colossians 2, something, there's a therefore. You'll find the therefore. Go find the therefores. You know, on Sunday afternoon reading assignment, go find the therefores in the New Testament. Um, this is who you are in Christ. And then he says, therefore, and then that's when the imperative comes in, comes in the, the commands, the things that we're supposed to do in response to that forgiveness. We need to make sure we have this right. The law was never given to be our means of salvation. It's always given to people who have already been redeemed. We see it right here in the first six verses of uh, Exodus 19. We'll see it again in the first two verses of Exodus 20. Ever since the first gospel proclamation back in Genesis 3.15, we have lived by grace and not by obedience. So God reminds Israel first of His sovereign work of salvation and only then calls them to obedience. But look at the result. Look at what happens, verses 5 and 6. Look at the way He describes uh, the people. You'll be my treasured possession. It's the word of a a king. It's it's a, a word that describes the king's sort of most precious, most favored possession in all the land. In fact, notice what happens after this in verse five, my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. God owns everything. And yet among all the things that he owns, his people are his treasured possession. Look under the mountain, right? The, the gold the jewels that Thorin Oakenshield had. The, pa- 
piles and piles of, of gold. You could never count the gold. And, and the stones and the swords and the shields from, from ages past. But all he cared about was the ark and stone. That was his treasured possession. All the rest of it, it didn't really matter. It was that one stone that he wanted more than anything in the world. That's you. That's the church. That's God's people. That's us. That's who we are. God's treasured... Does he own it all? Absolutely. And yet, within all that he owns, the church is his treasured possession. The church is his Arkenstone, if I can even push it that far. His redeemed people are to him among all of creation his greatest, most treasured possession. Notice verse 6. Israel, the church, will also be a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Priests represent God to the people and the people to God. They, they basically serve as a, 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 a sacrificial sort of intermediary between God and His people. So what then is a kingdom of priests? Well, if we're all priests, then that means we have an obligation to, to represent one another to God. But it also means that part of our function as the church is to represent God to the world around us. We're called to show them who He is by our lives, by our existence. The presence of the church in the world should serve as a representation of God in the world. And also be a holy nation. A nation set apart from all the others, different from all the rest, and set apart to God. As a, a holy people, we are separated from the rest of the world and we're set apart to God and to Him alone. I hope, I, hope I've, I hope you've picked up on this, and I hope I've done it, honestly, enough. Um, if you notice, I've interchanged church and Israel. Um, the reason for that is because Israel is the church, and the church is the true Israel. We get that in Paul's writings, when he says in, in Romans, when he says that really the, the true Israel are not necessarily those who genetically descend from Abraham, but who, like him, look to God in faith, who live by grace through faith in Christ, who believe his word and to whom it's counted as righteousness. The church is Israel. Israel is the church. Besides, our New Testament reading just a few minutes ago, Peter, writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation, used these words to describe them. Gentiles grafted into God's kingdom, now part of the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the treasured possession. But I want you to notice something. Uh, verse 4. How I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If we think 
that the promised land was the pinnacle of Israel's deliverance. If we think that heaven is the pinnacle of our deliverance, we think too lowly. He didn't just save them and deliver them. He brought them to himself. Think about the number of times over the last several weeks, especially early on in Exodus, uh, the concept of knowing the Lord came up. He said about Pharaoh, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then he will know that I am the Lord. He says to Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord. And part of the point is that the real pinnacle of our salvation is that we are his. Wherever we might be, whether here on earth or in heaven. Perhaps I should have chosen a different closing hymn this morning. Um, now the words don't. Uh, more happy. I used this illustration, I think, in Sunday school last week. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified saints in heaven. Maurice and Mary Nellis are happier than you and I are. Their salvation is no more secure than yours is. Why? Not because we're there yet, not because they're there and we aren't, but because we're with Him. He saves you so that you might be His, to bring you to Him. He saves us that we might have a relationship with with Him. That's the aim of our deliverance. That's the aim of our salvation. It's greater than just a get-out-of-hell-free card, which is great. But if we're far more concerned with streets of gold than the presence of Christ, we think too lowly. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. The first is, this is true of the church today. This is us. This is, this is you and me. He's talking here to His chosen, delivered people. Whether they're called Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New, it's still the same people. It's one people. This is you and me. This is true of the church today. A second application. You can't save yourself by your obedience. The law isn't given so that you might keep it and then obey. It's given to people who have already been delivered. We need to make sure we have that order right. And finally, what do we gain from our salvation? It's not just heaven. Not just the promised land. We gain God Himself. We gain a relationship with the creator and sustainer of all that is, who owns it all, but who looks at us, who looks at the church and says, that is my treasured possession. Have you seen the church? Have you looked around at the church? I mean, sometimes you don't like it. Sometimes we look around at other believers and go, I don't know about all this. The fighting and the... And he looks at the church and goes, that, that's my ark and stone. That's my treasured possession. 
Oh, that He would grant us the grace to live like that. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder uh, that our salvation is all of grace, uh, that we are saved uh, by the person and work of Christ and not by our own obedience, and that you've given the law to your redeemed people that we might live to honor and glorify you, that we might live uh, to, to uh, glorify you and enjoy you forever. Uh, we pray that you would, in this life, grant us a taste of that enjoyment. Recognizing that Maurice and Mary may taste that far more deeply. They're drinking more deeply from your streams of grace and love and mercy. But may we get a sampling of that ourselves here in this life. And that we would respond in joyful, humble obedience because it brings us and you delight when we do that. Through Christ we ask it all. Amen.